We were going to call this series Shiny Object Syndrome for the fact that all these new technologies come along and people get really excited about them. But we chose instead to call it This Does Not Compute, a podcast series about what's going on with emerging technologies, with the technologies that you read about in the papers, and we get real experts to come in and talk about it. I'm Caitlin Chin, I work at CSAS, and I'll be your host for this podcast. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Byron Tao, here to talk about his new book titled Means of Control, How the Hidden Alliance of Tech and Government is Creating a New American Surveillance State. It's a really fascinating read. Byron takes us through the evolution of surveillance over the past couple decades. This is a space that has been shaped by technological trends, including the rise of smartphone apps, ad tech, and social media, and has been upended by world events like 9-11. Byron gives us a glimpse into a really intricate and opaque network of startups, government contractors, and other companies that voluntarily share or sell personal information with government agencies. And this is a world that many Americans don't have a lot of visibility into. Some of us might be aware that companies track our web browsing history and shopping transactions, and that we might see targeted advertisements based on that data. But I don't think that most people quite understand the extent to which private companies are able to predict or infer personal details about us, and furthermore, that government agencies could potentially access this information too. And this lack of transparency is by design. So Byron, I wanted to start by asking you, what sparked your interest in this industry, the data brokerage industry, prompting you to spend years reporting and eventually write a book on it? Yeah, so it basically all started with a tip. Uh, I was a fairly new reporter on the Justice Department and Legal Beat and was looking for interesting and new stories to tell. And I came to find out that the Department of Defense, or at least contractors working for the Department of Defense, were buying access to essentially the digital ad networks that power those little banner ads. And whenever a consumer agrees to share their location with an app, Those ad networks get that location data, and there are thousands and possibly tens of thousands of entities that can take that data, hoover it up, save it, and sometimes resell it. And basically, this contractor, and I would find out that many more contractors, had built an entire surveillance program around this. And it was a peek into a world in which essentially our privacy had been put up for sale and governments were buying. So I want to go back and talk about 9-11. 9-11 changed everything in terms of surveillance. Nowadays, if we want to go on a plane, we'll have to go through potentially hours of security. The government expanded its wiretapping capabilities through laws like the Patriot Act and Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Your book describes how ad tech companies like Axiom, after 9-11, actually realized that they could analyze commercial transactions as well and how this information could potentially provide intelligence value to the government. Could you talk about this? Sure. So essentially the big lesson that intelligence officials took after 9-11 was that there was plenty of information out there. The government actually knew a lot about the hijackers. Corporations knew a lot about the hijackers. But really there was a failure to what they called connect the dots, to take all of the disparate data that the government had and that corporate America had and really be able to find clues and identify patterns and show that there were anomalies in the run-up to the attack. And so after that, 
a bunch of government projects, including the Total Information Awareness Program led by uh, Admiral Poindexter and a number of other efforts were stood up to see how predictive analytics or big data could start to be used to look for anomalies or strange patterns or essentially just sort through large volumes of data, particularly commercial data, and look for essentially outliers. Yeah, and this commercial data, this includes information like financial transactions, right, internet browsing history, movement history, credit card debt, even ethnicity. You talked about something called the bad guys database, which was essentially, like you mentioned, attempting to identify potential terrorists before they carry out attacks. So not even analyzing or investigating previous incidents, right? And There were some early doubts about the legality of U.S. government agencies contracting with commercial data miners, right? You mentioned very early on a DOD attorney essentially saying, you know, this is the DOD, we don't do this shit. So in in general, did government agencies agree with this attorney's assessment and change their behavior based on potential legal concerns? Yeah, it's a good question. So early on when the government started tapping sources of data beyond its traditional intelligence capabilities, and that included data from data brokers like LexisNexis and Axiom and, um, you know, uh, all these data brokers that have been around since the uh, 1960s and have catered to the commercial market, there were these questions about what did it mean for our civil rights and civil liberties to, to, um, to ingest that kind of data. And so you saw programs like Total Information Awareness, uh, which became very, uh, very uh, controversial and was actually one of the very few programs in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 that Congress actually defunded. This was a time when Congress was uh, largely giving the Bush administration what it wanted in terms of powers. But when it came to ingesting that kind of data on the American population, you did see this discomfort and this revolt in Congress. And so there were a lot of open questions about the legality of these kind of programs and the legality of the government acquiring this kind of bulk commercial data. And at the end of the day, Congress never really resolved a lot of these things. By and large, it's considered legal for the government to purchase data. It's considered open source. But these thorny questions about our civil rights and civil liberties have largely been swept under the rug and have largely remained unaddressed by public policy, by Congress, and in many cases by the courts. After Congress defunded the Total Information Awareness Program, what happened to the program? Did that did that um, curb or pause government contracts with analytics companies in general? Yeah, so that program is an interesting one. So essentially, Congress did wind it down on paper, but large parts of it actually continued for many, many years afterwards. And this big idea that was at the heart of it, the ability to take commercially available data and merge it with classified data, that never went away. That was something the government continued experimenting on and continues right up to this day in terms of the data that government ingests, and that includes social media data, it includes commercial data, it includes, and oftentimes, transaction data, all sorts of obscure data sets. So in the big picture, the intelligence community, the military, and law enforcement never lost interest in doing research on that topic, and it continued underground for the better part of 20 years. I want to pick up on that point about social media data. We're seeing this interest in data analytics increase after 9-11 and in the decades that followed. But previously, open source intelligence was thought of as potentially less valuable than classified information. But your book describes a shift in the perceived value of this data 
rebranded as publicly available information. And this trend also occurs in parallel with other trends like the rise of social media, this new cultural norm of people sharing photos and location online. So could you just talk about how the intelligence community started to use social media analysis and what questions this raises? Sure. So essentially, the intelligence community was responding to big picture changes in social norms and the use of technology. At one time, it was very difficult to, you know, listen in on the social conversation that Americans and people around the world were having. But with the rise of Facebook, with the rise of Twitter, and eventually Instagram and TikTok and Be Real and whatever's next, there is this impulse to share things about yourself in a public or semi-public way. And of course, governments began realizing that and taking advantage of it as people's communication shifted. And so you saw governments begin to get interested in social media monitoring software to drop rules around how to engage with social media and ultimately to participate in that conversation themselves, sometimes overtly and sometimes covertly. And so it's been a long period of time, but there are now these complicated rules, especially for the Department of Defense and the intelligence community, to be able to listen in on social media and, and sometimes participate in these conversations through personas or cutouts or fake accounts, whatever you want to call them. That is something the American government does. At the same time, we also complain when foreign entities do that to us. So you saw that in the 2016 election and subsequent elections that the United States government was very worried about adversaries like China and Russia influencing the information environment and putting propaganda into American social media feeds. And so in the big picture, this is uh, part of a bigger struggle over information networks that the United States and all of its major and sometimes minor adversaries and rivals are engaged in as well. Yeah. And we, we saw that Americans were outraged, right, when the Russian government used targeted ads and user-generated posts to promote Donald Trump during the 2016 presidential election. And there was a huge scandal when Cambridge Analytica collected or analyzed users' personal information on Facebook to target advertisements. Have we seen similar outrage from the U.S. public around government use of social media analysis, whether to scrape posts or track conversations online or even to investigate potential crimes? So certainly civil libertarians in the United States have raised concerns for many, many years about the government uh, using social networks or monitoring social networks, especially when it comes – especially in terms of protests um, mm -hmm. and First Amendment-protected activities. We certainly saw the police aggressively monitor social media beginning in the mid-2010s around major civil disturbances like the Ferguson unrest and the unrest in Baltimore, and more recently, the civil unrest around George Floyd's death. And we also saw an extensive post-January 6th campaign by the FBI and others to keep tabs on domestic extremists and white supremacists and all other manner of right-wing groups. And Americans' reactions to these efforts tend to depend where they sit politically. Uh, so you saw in the summer of 2020, it was largely left-leaning activists that were concerned about the police presence in activist spaces. And then January 6th happens months later, and it's actually the opposite. It's conservatives who are now concerned about police presence in domestic domestic social media networks. And so the big picture questions I think that we want to resolve as a society are what are the content neutral rules and what are the circumstances in which police, intelligence officers, and the military are allowed to access these networks? And I don't think 
with the sheer number of police departments out in out there in the country, I don't think there are uniform policies and procedures. I mean, there are probably almost 20,000 police departments in the United States, and each of them is as varied as the communities that they patrol. And all of them have different rules and norms around what they do online. And there's remarkably little case law and legislation around this. And so there's a lot of unanswered questions around this, and it's going to be a topic that continues to royal uh, police departments and state legislatures and city councils and ultimately Congress for many years to come. Right, right. We're in a murky area. Traditionally, U.S. law has assigned fewer privacy protections to information considered publicly available. Um, but with social media, that, I, I mean, there's a lot of gray area, right? Just because somebody posts something on their private Facebook account or posts something on Instagram, they might expect, our, you know, our friends to see it or our coworkers or relatives. We might not expect law enforcement to be tracking this information as well. That's right. And in fairness to law enforcement, they're in a difficult position, right? Because if they under surveil social media, if they miss possible clues of radicalism or that someone is plotting violence, um, then often the public reacts very negatively to that. On the other hand, if they overly aggressively police public discourse, if they knock on doors of activists who haven't done anything other than express their First Amendment rights, they're accused of, of heavy-handed policing or profiling or surveilling people based on their constitutionally protected speech. So it is a very, very difficult line. And, and it's it's a hard thing for law enforcement to figure out and get right. Are we finding that social media analysis is accurate? So if somebody posts something concerning on social media, is that is that alone an immediate cause for concern? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of concern about First of all, especially in the high-level nation-state context, there's a lot of concern that foreign governments are putting fake information or have created sock puppet accounts or are trying to manipulate the public conversation in the United States. So there's a lot of fakery on the internet, and it is difficult for intelligence analysts and police departments to figure that out. Second, you know, most of the time, there's a lot of people with a lot of keyboard courage out there, right? They, they say all sorts of provocative things, and very few of it, very few of them actually spill into real-world violence. On the other hand, sometimes it does happen. And threading that needle of when is someone just being kind of provocative and when is somebody really threatening public order or public safety is not something that our bureaucracies have traditionally been very good at, and they continue to struggle with it to this day. Mm-hmm. In social media analysis, you talk about this global competition for information not only as a method of internal surveillance, so not just tracking what people might say or post online, but also as a potential form of external messaging. So governments can create social media profiles to generate content or spread messages. And I think normally when we hear this, we think, you know, the Russian government, you know, where people sitting in hoodies in foreign countries just typing away on their computers. But your book also describes a document for a U.S. government contractor to create profiles to generate content in countries like Iraq and Syria and Jordan to support U.S. policy positions. So could you talk a little bit about this? Yeah. So the U.S. government does also engage in information operations abroad. They create fictitious social media personas, either through contractors or directly through government agencies, and they engage with people and sometimes entire populations online, which is ex essentially the exact same thing we spent all of 2016 and, and many years afterwards uh, blasting the Russians for. Now, that's not to draw a moral equivalence between the U.S.'s foreign policy vis-a-vis -vis the outside world and Russia's, but it is to say that we are doing the same thing on the same information networks for our own ends. 
And to me, that raises more questions than answers, right? Is it is it only wrong to use these information networks to do things like interfere in a democratic election, or is it wrong to use them at all? And I don't think the United States government has really articulated what its policy is on the use of fake accounts or information operations in social media and social spaces. How have social media companies responded to either government agents or third-party vendors analyzing data or tracking conversations or even creating these fake profiles on their services? So by and large, social media companies are interested in two things, their, their bottom lines and the experience of their users. And so sometimes those are in conflict because we saw with Twitter that it actually had a very robust data monetization business. And for a while, a a number of government agencies or government-linked contractors were buying Twitter data through that pipeline. At the same time, Twitter had general prohibitions against uh, conducting surveillance on its platform. And it was hard to square those two things, right? Because on the one hand, they're selling data about the social conversation that happens publicly on their platform. On the other hand, they're saying to government agencies that you're not really supposed to be using that data to listen into the conversation. And so at the end of the day, at least pre-Elon Musk, Twitter did move to crack down on governments buying that kind of data. They did determine that some use cases were acceptable. So namely, uh, they allowed the DOD to do things like um, look for activity around their bases or in places where they were operating. But by and large, they weren't letting governments uh, or government users, at least officially, buy data for the purpose of trying to track protesters or individual user accounts. But at the end of the day, these are open networks, right? Like Twitter is public and anyone can set up a Twitter account and anyone can sort of see what's being posted, at least publicly on Twitter. So it's very difficult to police some of this stuff. And it's very difficult to police data once it leaves your server, right? Because it can be resold, it can be relabeled, it can be turned into a different kind of tool and, you know, relabeled that way. And so it has ultimately been very, very difficult for the social media companies to really impose rules or to impose meaningful constraints on governments using these platforms for whatever they feel like. I want to move on and ask about ad tech, specifically location tracking. We've talked a little bit about how companies and governments can analyze commercial data, how they can analyze social media or open source information. But you talk about companies, for example, Uber Media, that for just a few a few hundred thousand dollars a month, you know, just, you know, just change really. Uber Media will provide a global feed of every single phone in the world that it's able to track. I mean, for somebody like myself, I work at a nonprofit think tank, that's a lot of money, but government agencies or other actors could potentially acquire this information. So how did how did ad tech, how did location tracking change how government agencies operate and are able to track movement history. Sure. So ad tech refers to this capability, usually by government-linked contractors or government-linked entities, to collect all the GPS bits and bytes of phones and to put them in some sort of product that the government or government analysts can use to look at the movement of people. And it basically has come about because of the way that Google and Apple and all of the major Madison Avenue and Silicon Valley advertising technology players have built this entire system to serve you personalized ads. That system is not designed for privacy. It's designed to allow the maximum number of advertisers access to your data, your phone, your devices, and to collect information about what you do on those things. And so 
you know, a tool that powerful, a network that large, was bound to attract the attention of governments. And sure enough, it did. First, many of those companies were legitimately in the commercial market, were trying to do things like either serve targeted ads, or sometimes you can do stuff like help investment firms decide how to invest. You know, are the number of cars in the Walmart parking lot going up or down by month by month? And what does that mean for Walmart's bottom line? Or you can help real estate firms, you know, decide where to put a building. But the siren song of government money is very strong in these markets. And a lot of these companies eventually found that government or government contractors were very willing buyers and had a lot of money to spend. And so eventually these private sector entities that were doing originally doing things like real estate or targeted advertising find themselves as government contractors, you know, feeding data to quasi-secret surveillance programs. And that's sort of where the book delves in and that's where my first tip came about. Yeah. And it, there was one example in your book that really struck me. It's just a really a good example of how powerful this data could be. And that was the arrest of Ivan Lopez. So this was a man who owned a restaurant near the U.S.-Mexico border. And basically, based on unusual cell phone patterns, um, essentially the law enforcement was able to track cell phones traveling into Mexico and into the United States where there was no actual passage. They were able to find an underground tunnel leading from this restaurant to Mexico. But really what struck me was just the general lack of transparency surrounding this entire case. The government did not obtain a warrant to track phones around Lopez's restaurant, which was, I mean, essentially just like an abandoned KFC, right, that didn't have any customers. But DHS also didn't really disclose how the police knew to pull over Lopez during a, a routine traffic stop. It held a press conference, but it didn't really inform the public or even Lopez himself about the details of the cell phone surveillance. So I, I it just really struck me how... How, how there's a gap between, I think, public awareness of cell phone location tracking and then how government agencies are able to procure and use this type of information. Right. That case struck me, too, because it strikes at the heart of these kind of constitutional questions that courts should ask themselves when you're dealing with new technology. So in this case, yeah, as you said, Lopez owned this KFC. Uh, I've actually been there. It's literally the last building in America if you're driving down you know, a street in this little dusty town uh, along the Mexican-U.S. border. And Lopez is an American citizen, right? This, is, this was used in a domestic criminal law enforcement manner that affected an American citizen who has constitutional rights. And so what the police did in this case is they saw that there were phones crossing at this place where there was no border crossing. They put Lopez under surveillance and they basically waited for him to violate a traffic law and pulled him over. And then, you know, he had drugs in his car and that opened the door for further searches of his property. And, you know, that that to me raises this profound question because the way and the the way the Department of Homeland Security had approved use of this data was under the theory that, um, you know, people were opting in to share their location with these data brokers and these commercial entities. And they had essentially consented and, you know, who, who, anyone who's a target for the Department of Homeland Security is not really going to opt in to location tracking, right? So government use of these data sets relied in large part on public ignorance of the fact that they were getting this data. And I saw this time and time again, that the government did not want to discuss these capabilities and these vendors, even though the legal theory that they had used was that it was publicly available information and people had opted in, but they didn't want to talk about it. And that's the paradox at the heart of all of these open source intelligence tools that 
if people know they're being monitored, they'll change their behavior. And so the government doesn't want to talk about it. And, you know, that's a valid concern. But so it's also important that the public knows how their technology is behaving and what it's being used for. And the book aims to shed new light on the ways in which data is being repurposed by these government entities. Yeah, and this idea that people voluntarily opt into sharing their location information or they voluntarily choose to share data with cell phone companies or mobile app providers, it's really interesting because DHS, you mentioned, was actively researching how to use companies like Ventel that share location data during the summer of 2018 when this major Supreme Court decision came out, Carpenter v. United States, that did address geolocation information. In some of of us might have heard of this case, but not all of us know about the internal deliberations that government agencies went through around this time. So could you just talk about how did DHS or other agencies react to this decision? Did it influence the growing use of ad tech within government? So basically, Carpenter was a landmark decision because what it said is that consumers have or customers of cell phone companies have some right to privacy in the totality of their movements. And historically, the Supreme Court had said something like, if you share data with a third party, you've actually lost your expectation to privacy for that data. So the famous case in the 1970s is that the government got basically a log of everyone that a phone user had called, and the phone user challenged that, said that was unconstitutional, you need a warrant to get that kind of data. And the Supreme Court said, no, actually, because the telephone company has this data, because you have to share the numbers that you dial with the phone company, you've actually lost your expectation of privacy and therefore your phone calls, who you dial is not protected by the Fourth Amendment. Now, what you say on the phone call is protected, but just the list of calls, that's not protected. And so what Carpenter did was reverse almost 50 years of thinking on this and say, actually, you know, yes, you're sharing your location with the cell phone company, but you know, consumers do have some expectation that their precise movements won't be made available to the government absent some reason. And, you know, that decision in a very narrow technical way only applied to one kind of cell phone data. And so I don't know for sure, but it sure seemed like the government was looking for an alternate way to look at the movement of phones around the country without technically violating the spirit of Carpenter. And that's where ad tech came in. It just may have been a coincidence in terms of the technology maturing at the same time, or it may have been part of a deliberate effort to look for different tools and different data sets. I don't know for certain, but the timing certainly lines up. Right. It does raise a lot of questions, both legal questions and ethical questions. There were a couple of other developments that summer, namely the EU's general data protection regulation came to effect, which is still to this day one of the most comprehensive privacy laws in the world. And then California became the first U.S. state to pass a a comprehensive consumer privacy law, the California Consumer Privacy Act. Did these privacy laws and also additional privacy laws that were passed over the past five years, did these affect the growth of the data brokerage industry at all? So it's a good question, and I think it's a little too early to say. Uh, Certainly, I concluded in looking at a very specific part of both of those laws, which is the right to access your data and to figure out what happens to data on your phone. 
Both laws are something of a failure. When I was reporting this book, I tried at one point to use the CCPA, the California law, to get access to one of my colleagues who lives in California. I tried to see where the data on her phone was going, and we ran into brick wall after brick wall. And then separately, a team of reporters in Norway tried to use the GDPR to do the same thing, and they only managed to get a very tiny smidgen of information. So in terms of shedding transparency or light on this industry, I don't think either law, as written, is currently doing very much. On the other hand, you know, you have started to see uh, data collection practices and enforcement actions and, uh, you know, consumer privacy awareness around these things. And you have started to see regulators look very hard to take a very close look at a lot of these data broker practices. And that, I think, is driven in in part by these new regulatory regimes in, in Europe, in California, and increasingly in other states. And so it's a little early to tell. There are many, many data brokers out there, and not all of them are ethical. So the laws aren't perfect. But we are certainly seeing some changes in the ways in which regulators and government agencies are, are looking at consumer privacy. Your book also discusses the premise that if the U.S. government can collect all of this data on people, commercial transactions, geolocation history, social media data, then other governments could potentially do so as well. We know that the U.S. government is concerned about foreign governments, specifically governments like China and Russia, collecting Americans' personal information. Do you think that this growing data brokerage market should raise red flags for the intelligence community in that sense? It certainly should, but it puts them in a difficult spot because the more programs that rely on data brokers and open source information, the harder it is to wean yourself off of that capability even if other governments can also take advantage of it. And so, you know, we've seen many, many good reports on how private entities can buy data on our service members or how China and Russia engage in information operations all around the world on social media. But, you know, the United States does those things too. And it's hard to crack down on something that you're also taking advantage of. And so, it's a very difficult conversation to have openly for many of these agencies. They understand the counterintelligence risks. They can take actions that protect their own personnel, but they're loath to talk about them too publicly because to talk about the risks to our privacy as citizens might also inadvertently reveal what the United States government is doing in its public safety or its intelligence or its military missions. What about risks to digital trade or even our partnerships with allied governments? We know that after the Snowden leaks back in 2013, there was a global scandal. And even to this day in the EU, we're seeing these ongoing legal challenges over cross-border data flows due to U.S. government concerns. Most of those concerns are due to compelled surveillance, so the U.S. government being able to mandate companies turn over data or directly wiretap individuals. But do you think it's possible that we might see in the future these concerns shift to this voluntary data market? I think it does raise business concerns for companies in the commercial market, particularly advertisers and and other major players, tech players. And the way they've dealt with it is by avoiding talking about it. In many ways, the government is taking advantage of something that Silicon Valley and Madison Avenue have built together. The government was not the prime creator of this market. It did not mandate backdoors. It just figured out clever ways to exploit consumer technology that advertisers and tech companies have built in tandem. And 
you know, there is a risk that their products are seen as a form of surveillance and that there is a consumer backlash, but there's too much money in many of these networks to unwind them easily. And that is a major challenge for governments, for tech companies, and for advertisers. Right. There's a lot of money and the information is just so widely available, right? I mean, there are so many companies on the internet that will sell not only to government agencies, but also to anybody with a credit card that wants to purchase this information online. My final question is, where where do you think we're heading with this? And in the final pages of your book, you hinted that there are, were a couple of potential directions that the United States could go in. One is to just continue down our current path where U.S. surveillance can continue, U.S. governments can continue to partner with data brokers, and where perhaps people who take steps to protect their personal information from the government are looked upon with suspicion. But, I mean, there is another direction, and we do see members of Congress introducing legislation like the Fourth Amendment is Not for Sale Act, comprehensive federal privacy legislation to try to impose guardrails on how government agencies procure this type of information and how they use it. So what are you keeping an eye out for over the next few years and where do you think the United States might go? Yeah, I mean, it's a big picture social question and I I don't know the answer. I mean, consumers have come to expect many things online for free. They have come to become accustomed to these large tech companies having a pretty significant role in their life. And Unwinding this entire ecosystem of personalized advertising and sort of seamless tech experiences is is not going to be easy and it might not be something that consumers want. On the other hand, you know, I, I do think there is a lot more awareness and attention on privacy issues these days that companies like Apple and, and others like Signal have seen privacy and seen privacy as a selling point and saw consumers respond to it. And so, you know, I think we're trying to muddle through this as a society. You know, there's plenty of interesting proposals on Capitol Hill that would address some or many parts of this data broker ecosystem. I think the most important ultimately is going to be some sort of comprehensive privacy law. If the United States passes that, it will address a lot of these issues in a comprehensive way. Um, There is also the bipartisan bill that was originally authored by Senator Wyden that would directly crack down on the government purchasing data. Uh, That's also something to watch because it would directly impact many of these vendors that I wrote about in the book. But ultimately, I do think this is going to be a consumer question, right? Consumers and in their roles as voters are going to have to answer this question of, you know, how much information is too much information and do I want to participate? And I think that's a question we all have to ask ourselves every time we download an app and every time we use a service. Absolutely. Yeah, I I definitely feel like Americans have gotten used to free mobile apps and free websites, and that's very understandable. It's convenient. I think one of the challenges of privacy, though, is that the impacts of privacy violations aren't always immediately obvious. It's not always entirely clear how privacy violations could potentially affect our day to day. But I do think that your book sheds light on this and does a really great job of demonstrating why um, just the sheer extent of the data broker network should raise questions for Americans and could potentially create harm. Risks of privacy violations, risks of real-life harms that could potentially stem from that too. Yeah, and I certainly think that it's not always easy to know the ways in which data can be weaponized. And the book has a number of examples of 
people who have found themselves uh, even years later facing some sort of embarrassment or repercussion for data that was collected a long time ago and for a different purpose. There was a story in there about a, a priest who was using Grinder and who was later outed by a right-wing Catholic publication. There's other stories in there, including a famous anecdote where census data was collected under the promise of confidentiality and then was later used by the government to round up Japanese Americans and intern them. So, you know, data is difficult to control. And, you know, the biggest lesson anyone who's building a tech company or a consumer service should take away from this is that you don't know what will happen if you sell it or let it out of your control. And so maybe sometimes the best policy is not to collect it. Yeah. I think that's a that's an interesting note to end on. So thanks so much, Byron, for joining us on the This Does Not Compute podcast. Byron's book, Means of Control, How the Hidden Alliance of Tech and Government is Creating a New American Surveillance State, is out now. So I highly encourage all of our listeners to read it. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. See you on the next episode.